0: We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. We're going to celebrate communion in a little while. I always love that time because it is a, remember, a remembrance of Calvary. Jesus said to remember the, his death until he comes. And just as sure as he died on the cross, exactly like he said he would do, just as sure as he was raised from the dead, exactly like he said he would be, he's coming back again. And aren't you ready for that? Ready for him to come back. He's on his way. It's a perfect time. Those of you who were here last week, I just am so blessed to be able to be with you and I'm thankful for your faithfulness, those of you who've come. I shared kind of an intimate moment with myself and my son last week when we were talking about uh, Abba, Father, the name that Jesus spoke to the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's a very personal, it's like looking right in the eyes of your daddy. And I told you about the time that my little son ran across the Kitchen floor and hit his head. And he didn't say anything to me, but Dad, he didn't have to explain. He just wanted me to be with him in that time that he had bumped his head. And I had said there, he was in those what we call footy pajamas. Do y'all call them that? I don't know if there's any other name for them. Footy pajamas. And I had said, I just wonder if they have any my size. I'd like to wear those again. Well, I've got something to show you here tonight. Thanks to Walt. And Cheryl and Kim. I've never seen anything this big in my life. Uh, but they have footy pajamas for us men. Is that not cool? Do you see that? I'm going to be so warm. There's some down there for my wife. But I told them, I said, I think th- this will fit both of us. Uh, this Christmas time, we are not going to be cold. Is that not cool? And I said, Do they have feet in them? And that was the first thing I looked at. They do. So after Christmas, if I come back with a lump on my head, I was running across the the kitchen floor also. Isn't that cool? Thank you, Cheryl and Kim and Walt. What a great thing to remember this old guy. Footy pajamas. Wow. That's a great, great Thanksgiving gift. Thanksgiving. I hope this year that you'll remind everyone we don't thank each other. That's not what Thanksgiving was. We don't thank the businesses, we don't thank our country, we don't thank Thanksgiving was to thank God. It was initiated, it was started to have a meal together between people that realized if God doesn't give us food, if we're not going to live, we're not going to make it. So I hope you gently would correct everyone when they say, "I want to thank you for Thanksgiving" or "thank this person Thanksgiving." And it was set aside that way in our country regardless of what it might morph into is to take a moment, as we should do every day, and thank God for his rich blessings that he's given us. Tonight, as we look at this passage that Joel read to us, oh, so much that we have, have to be thankful for. Jesus is on trial. I want to read to you a definition. This is just a textbook definition of a trial. A judicial examination of issues of fact or law for the purpose of determining the rights of the parties involved. Sounds like a good definition. It's simply trying to figure out if someone has broken the law and what recourse or judgment that there should be. On trial means that that process is underway concerning someone's life or an alleged crime that had been committed. In the very first part of this passage in Mark 14, verse 53, the scripture says, they led Jesus away. And we're going to read about him on trial. There's actually six different trials that Jesus went through. Before I mention those, what comes to your mind if I ask you some of the most uh, well-known trials of our country? I asked some people that this week, and I got a few different answers, but I want to throw some of them out to you. You might have heard somebody say it's a trial of the century. We have the trial of the century till another one comes, and then that one's the trial of the century. But what are some of the most famous ones maybe in our country? You probably remember, uh, the. you may not remember, but you remember reading and studying about the Nuremberg Trials. Those were the trials of Nazi Germany criminals that had killed uh, relentlessly and ruthlessly many, many Jews and many, many Christians. That was on television, and you got to see that played out in front of you. The Scopes Monkey Trial, when we, uh, in our country, had those that were taken to... To a court for uh, wanting to many people wanting to uh, discount the the scripture and to place error inside of that the Brown versus Board of Education a uh, very famous trial about uh, again those that would try to pervert the truth and change our country to not be faithful to the Lord Roe v Wade it's interesting that that lady who uh, was in that lawsuit that uh, made abortion legal in this United States. She became a Christian and the way I understand and, and denounced what she had stood for before. But we've all heard of those. Do you remember where, where you were when O.J.'s uh, sentence was, was not handed out, when his, uh, his verdict was read? I remember right where I was. They're high-profile trials. We had one this this week in our country high-profile trials going on right now, and they all claim to be, in some cases, the trial of the century, but I tell you what, there is no trial, there's no one on trial like what Jesus did for you and me. Jesus actually had six different trials. They were uh, first by the religious leaders, the first three, And then the the next three were by the Roman political leaders. Uh, The three by the Jews were from Annas and Caiaphas. You might hear them both mentioned as the high priest. There was kind of a different situation right then. A sitting high priest and one that had been the high priest before. He was brought before them. And then the Sanhedrin. When you read about the Sanhedrin, we read about... 71 different members of a Jewish, just equate that with what we have as a Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin was the Jewish Supreme Court. So 71 different members. Those are the three trials, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin that Jesus stood in front of. And then there's three by the Romans. We'll talk about why that was, why that was important to the Jews to have Jesus tried in a Roman arena. There was Pontius Pilate, Herod, and then back to Pilate. In John 18, 31, uh, we we read uh, about these trials, and it says that they had to get political because the Sanhedrin was afraid that, uh, I mean, excuse me, the Sanhedrin knew that they could not commit Jesus to death. They could not kill someone. It had to be the Romans that killed for what they were trying to accuse Jesus of. So they wanted to get... Uh, Roman crucifixion, they wanted to get Jesus and try to convict him against Roman law. You remember Daniel? Remember what they said about Daniel? He prays three times a day looking toward Jerusalem as God told the Jews to do that. And they came and said, you will not find fault in this man, Daniel, except you find it against his God somehow. You've got to pass a law that he will not break or he will break because he's going to follow God. And it's the same thing with Jesus. They wanted to get him politically accused. And the way they did that was, do you know this Jesus? He claims to be the king of the Jews. There's a king other than Caesar. And that kind of forced the hand of the the Romans to get involved. It's interesting. these, These trials were... Totally bogus. They were they were not held correctly. They were unlawful trials. Uh, they they tried to try Jesus very quickly at night, and they thought that would be necessary because in Jewish criminal law it was customary to hold a trial immediately after the arrest. We have in our country where you are supposed to be able to have a speedy trial, but we find out that that takes a long place a long time, sometimes years after. Someone is arrested for something. But they, in that day, would have a very, uh, right after the arrest, hold a trial. Uh, Roman legal trials were usually held shortly after sunrise. So if they were going to get Jesus tried in a Roman court, they had to do something in, at night. And it was, all, it was uh, unlawful to hold court at night according to the Jewish law. So everything they're doing is a tactic Not because they're doing things properly, but they're doing things to try to wrongly accuse Jesus. Um, Jesus, when he was finally in custody, they didn't want to to delay anything because they were afraid of the crowd. They were afraid if news got out that this one who had healed the blind men and, and healed the lame and raised the dead... If the news got out, they're going to be a mob come and get us. And we're afraid of what that mob will do. So we've got to do something to get Jesus convicted and get him killed before the rest of the people find out about that. And those things sound familiar? Trying to twist the law, trying to do things deceitfully to get an agenda. I just want us to think for a few moments about what Jesus did there. All during this time, until we'll read about tonight, Jesus had been telling the disciples, it's not my time, it's not my hour yet, it's not time. Let's go to Jerusalem and die, one of them said. Jesus said, it's not my time yet. But now we've come to the moments in Jesus' life when it is time. The scripture said he would be led to, uh, like a lamb to the slaughter and he would be silent. There's many times during this trial when they tried to provoke or prod Jesus to say something, to catch him in his words, and he stood silent. I think about the Bible that says, wisdom is justified of her children. And that simply means that the wisdom of God is going to be revealed. It's going to show up. The truth is going to show up. Did you know the truth? You might have been victim sometimes of something that wasn't true. Somebody said something. And maybe in business you were, you were wrongfully treated and you think, why would anybody believe that? And possibly it's still to this day that people believe that. But you know one day there's going to be all the wrongs righted? There's going to be a day that Jesus makes all things right. And people will not be able to hide. Those that don't know Christ will be judged by every idle word they've ever spoken. they are books that have been written. Those of us who know Christ won't have to go to that judgment by God's grace. So Jesus is on trial. They're doing things against the law to try to use the law to crucify Jesus. And one of the things they want to get Jesus to do is blaspheme. If the Jewish people could hear Jesus blaspheme to speak evil or untruth against God... They feel like we've got him. Who are the players in the story? There's Jesus. There's going to be Peter. John is not recorded here, but John's close. Uh, High priest, chief priest, elders, scribes, council officers, Roman guards. There's going to be a little servant girl. We don't know what her name is. False witnesses. And eventually he's going to be sent to Pontius Pilate and to Herod. Look at verse 2, verse uh, 53. at the end of that. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right in the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. We read in one of the other gospels, Probably Peter got the ability to be there with these officers out there in the courtyard because John knew the high priest, and John had a way to get in there. We don't have record that the other apostles are there, but Peter's there, and we know as we read this story why he was there. Verse 55, he's warming himself at the fire, and it says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus, to put him to death, and they were not finding any. You know, if this was not so serious, I would laugh. Can you imagine trying to find a fault with a, with a perfect deity that has never done anything wrong? Today, we have investigators, and actually, my son-in-law is an investigator that, that goes deep. Did you know that there, there are searches on the internet, and then there are these things called deep searches? You don't want to be the subject of one of those deep searches, by the way. I don't either. But he finds people that commit crimes on the computer. Investigators go to great lengths trying to dig up some fault, some dirt, some sin, some broken law that somebody's committed. They don't care how long ago it was. They'll put it all over the newscasts and everywhere trying to condemn somebody. But can you imagine them trying to find something wrong with Jesus? He's perfect. He never sinned. He never broke the law. He is infallible, and they're looking for fault in him. Verse 56 says, For many were giving false testimony against him. Now, it's interesting to note, they were looking for people that could testify against Jesus, but they knew they couldn't really find any, so they have false ones. And how do you get false testimony? You pay somebody. You pay somebody to come and lie against whomever you want to convict. And that's what's happening right here. They've got false testimony. Look what it says. But their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands. And in three days I will build another made without hands. That's an example right there. Jesus had never said made with hands. That's not in the statement that he had made. He had said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And the Bible says that he was talking about his body. His body that was going to be put in the grave after three days. The temple of his body was going to be raised up. They didn't understand. But they took his words, added to it, twisted his his, uh, statement. And they're trying to give testimony and it's false against our Lord. Verse 59. Not even in this respect was their testimony Consistent, have you ever seen that in the trials of the century, and when you turn on the television and you hear those trials and and the the, the prosecution wants some witnesses up here and and then the defense wants some witnesses up here and they try to keep from some from getting up there because how many of you have ever been on a jury? Raise your hand, God bless you, and we'll pray for you. Do you have to have therapy after you've been on that? I think you do don't you uh, that's part of our civic duty and Most of the time, I've always, I've been called a lot of times, but uh, most of the time, I've been uh, not, not accepted. I was with one of my church brothers one time, and we sat through the picking of two different juries, 24 people, and they picked 23 people, and we're looking at each other. Yes. And the 24th picked him, and I said, I love you, brother, but I'm gone. I'll pray for you, but I'm gone. And I narrowly escaped that one right there but what is the prosecution? They want to twist the words. The defense wants to twist the prosecution's word. They want to find fault in them. And if you ever mess up just a little bit, what do they do? They just jump on you like a lion. Well, this is such a mockery of the trials that Jesus is going through. It says none of their testimony was consistent. None of them agreed because they're all telling lies. Verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? Jesus didn't choose to defend himself. He's going to tell uh, in just a moment. He is going to give an answer, but much of these trials he sat silent. Jesus didn't have to defend the truth because the truth was the truth. It was evident. It was sure. It could not be altered. And Jesus fulfilled scripture that he, like a sheep, led to the slaughter, would be silent. What is it that these men are testifying against you? The high priest asked, but he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, and women, I want you to look at this right here, because this is one of those pivotal moments in all of history. Jesus has been silent. He was before Pontius Pilate. Uh, and he's going to be silent much of the time. He did not try to defend himself because he was the son of God and it didn't make any difference what the Romans said or the Jews said. But here we're going to see one of the first times that Jesus publicly announces who he is. The high priest was questioning him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. Now, if you know your Bible, you know church history, you know that those words right there are reserved. I am is the name of God. When Moses said, uh, after being on the mountain with God, and God told him, send him back down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he said, who, who do I say will send, has sent me? And he said, you tell him I am sent you. The Jews wouldn't even speak those words. They were held in reverence and hushed. They would not say the word I am. And when Jesus spoke, I am. That Jewish Sanhedrin knew that they had him. Here is this man claiming to be God. Now, not only was he claiming to be God, uh, the Christ or the Messiah, but he was claiming to be the one that was from David's line. He was claiming to be the son of man that Daniel talked about that would be the Christ. Now, if it weren't true, that would be blasphemy because if any man, woman, or child claimed to be God, that was blasphemy in the name of God. And the only way it would not be blasphemy and he would be worthy of a Roman death is it not be true. Worthy of a Jewish putting him to death and them convincing the Romans that he is a king uh, apart from Caesar. But the fact is, it is true. And when Jesus said, I am the son of man, I am the Christ, I am God, The Jews thought, ah, we've got him. He went on to say, and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. It's interesting. This trial condemned an innocent man you ever thought about how many times that might have taken place in our country? I want to read you some statistics that were, that were uh, amazing to me. How many times do you think in America someone who is innocent has been convicted, punished, and also often even executed with capital punishment and they weren't guilty? Let me give you some, some uh, numbers here. According to a 2019 annual report by the National Registry of Exonerations... Wrongful conviction statistics show that the percentage of wrongful convictions in the United States is somewhere between 2% and 10%. You say, well, those numbers aren't too large unless you are one of those 2 out of 100 or up to 10 out of 100. And then it matters, doesn't it? 2% to 10% of people that are convicted of crimes in the United States are not guilty. There's error that has been made. A little bit further they said there are 2.3 million people incarcerated in the United States. This was 2019. 2.3 million people in jails and in prisons. And that would come out to, if it was 2%, 46,000 of those people are not guilty up to 230,000 of those people. What would you do? If you had been convicted, someone may be mistaken identity. And many of those things are because of mistaken identity. But you are tried and you're convicted. And someone says, you are the one that did it. And it's your word against theirs. And the, the jury and the court system say, you are guilty. You're in prison. You're in, in many times sentenced to, to life in prison or even uh, the, the death penalty. What would you think? I'm wrongly convicted. You wouldn't stop, would you? Your family wouldn't stop saying, but they're innocent. There's not hardly anybody standing up for Jesus, is there? John's somewhere close. We don't have anything recorded that he said at this time. Peter's gonna try in some way, but he's already tried before. Peter's gonna mess up in just a moment. Listen to this. Over 2,400 Of those people in prisons have been exonerated since 1989 in the United States, 2,400. 375 were proven not guilty by DNA evidence. Now we have something that we didn't ever have for all those years. They can take some of the evidence that the people were convicted by, try to match that with their DNA, they find out it was not them. And so 375 have been let free out of prison by DNA evidence. 143 people exonerated in 2019 spent a record 1,908 years in prison. They weren't guilty. They were innocent. Can you picture what you would feel like Can you picture if if your son or your daughter, your wife or your husband, your friend, your brother, your sister, someone was put in prison and you know that they're not guilty. Is there anything you wouldn't do to try to bring that up again and have it retried and new evidence brought forth? No, you would do anything because they're innocent. Jesus is the most innocent there ever has been. I've been a lot of places and uh, been to a lot of jails and prisons to visit people. And um, I remember going to one of the maximum security prisons in the state of Texas. And they search you so thoroughly. They search your car. They search you. uh, They just can't search you any more thoroughly. I'm going to put it that way. And then I found out that the guy that I was uh, going to visit wasn't even in that unit. He was down there in the unit where they just wave you through. Come on in. And I thought, you know, why did I have to go through that other? I was glad he was not in that unit. And I walked in and said, how are you doing? And uh, he said, I'm just not guilty. I got put in here. I'm not guilty. And he said, I've only found one guy in this whole place that said he's guilty. I thought how comical that was. Everybody else was claiming their innocence. Do you know what Billy Graham said about those that are in prison? One of the greatest hurdles that they have coming to know Christ is that many people that are in prison and they know that they've done wrong and they've been rightly sentenced is that they don't believe they can be forgiven. And that's something. My younger brother is named Dean, and he would go into the, the prison in our hometown every week, and he'd take his Bible in there. He would share Christ with them. And one of the messages that he would always share is I don't know what you've done, and you don't know what I've done, but God does, and God can forgive anything. And many of those people in prison came to know Christ, and they would baptize them in a little horse trough outside, and those men mostly would come and say, Thank you, Jesus. Because it doesn't matter what man says about me. And thank you, Jesus, that although I have broken the law and I have sinned, you have forgiven me and you've washed me and made me clean. We've got a lot to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. You may not have ever been put in prison for something you've done, but have you sinned? I was in camp one time when I was about eight years old. And uh, one of the camp teachers was was speaking to us boys and girls about uh, making sure that we tell the truth and that we've all broken God's law and we've all sinned. She said, how? there was a girl there. Her name was Julie. If Julie, if you're listening, I haven't seen you for about 50 years, but 50 something, but oh, she was so cute. And I thought, boy, I'd like her to be my girlfriend during camp week. And the teacher, I'll never forget, she asked, how many of you have never told a lie? And Julie was the only one that raised her hand. And I wanted to say out loud, there's another one. You just told another lie because I know you have. And it just destroyed my plans for camp week (laughs) and that girl. We've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. And we might not have been in prison or you might have been in prison. One of the things that the Messiah, the Christ that was going to come was he was going to set the captives free. And I tell you what, there's some that have been set free, exonerated because they were not guilty, brought out of prison. There's some that are still in prison here tonight, but they're set free in Christ. And they're brand new, and they're forgiven, and they're not guilty anymore. We've got a lot to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. I've never been in jail except to visit. There was one time they locked the doors behind me. I wasn't too sure they were going to let me out. I was a little nervous that day. But Jesus says, No, you're not guilty. The Messiah of Isaiah's prophecy was going to come and break the chains of those that are bound. Set the captives free. Preach the gospel of salvation to people that are lost. And that's what Jesus did. Mary Magdalene. Oh, Mary Magdalene had a life that we probably couldn't ever dream of. Probably thought she could never have any hope for her life. Bound by seven different devils, the scripture says. Demonically possessed. And what the enemy had done to her. And yet when she met Jesus, he cast all those demons out. And Mary Magdalene was one of my heroes of the Bible. Did you know that? She was fearless. She's standing there at the foot of the cross. She followed Jesus. She was the first one. Man, if you ever think that you're, uh, you know, a little more important than you ought to be, remember it was a woman that Jesus appeared to first, okay? Mary Magdalene. Jesus came and set her free. And he's done that for you and me too. We've got a lot to be thankful for this Thanksgiving. When Jesus said, I am... That shook the world because he's claiming to be God. He's claiming to be the Christ, the Messiah that all those Jews were waiting on. When the high priest tore his garments, that's a symbol of of tremendous emotion, a lot of times of sorrow and of repentance. Here, this is a sign showing that there needed to be repentance. He had heard a man blaspheme, he thought, in his own presence. I don't want you to notice the first. Word of verse 65. Some. These are the Jewish leaders. You know, they're the ones that should have been the men of God. They should have been the ones kept waiting, uh, couldn't wait to see the Messiah and announcing, He's here. These should have been the ones that would have recognized the Son of God. And yet it says Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. They knew that the, the Christ, the Messiah, didn't have to see by eyesight. He could know who was hitting him, and they mocked him and made fun of him, blindfolded him and hitting him in the face and saying, prophesy to us, Christ Messiah. Tell us which one of us hits you. It goes on to say in that verse, and the officers received him with slaps in the face. I'm reminded of Isaiah speaking in the 53rd chapter talking about the suffering servant that was going to come hundreds of years later, and he said he was bruised for our iniquity. Jesus had all kinds of injuries on his body before he gets to the cross where there's perforations and there's contusions, he now is going to have bruises all over his face. Did you know Isaiah said that Jesus' face during this cruel torture, his face was marred, cut up, and beaten more than any other man. They took his beard and they plucked the hairs off of his beard. Sometimes we, we kind of see a homogenized version of, of the Easter story and we see a little drop of blood coming down. I, that's not the way it was. Jesus was tortured. He was tortured by the religious leaders. He's gonna be tortured by Roman soldiers, hired killers that knew how to inflict pain. The acts against Jesus in this passage are these. He was led away. They obtained false testimony. He was questioned. He was contemned. He was spat upon. He was blindfolded, beaten with her fist. He was mocked and he was slapped. Israel rejects her king. Verse 66. If that was not enough, the Jews, what they did to him, The Bible says, as Peter was blowing the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also are with Jesus the Nazarene. The Bible says in another uh, gospel that uh, you're one of them because I can tell by the way you talk. When my wife and I moved here about 13 years ago, I moved from West Texas. I thought when I lived in West Texas, everybody else in the world had an accent. But whenever you move to another place, some people say, no, you have an accent. And so I have uh, been, been uh, uh, recognized that I grew up in the country. There's a girl that just attended one of the classes that I get to teach on Sunday morning a few weeks ago, and she had heard the evening service, and she said, who is that? He sounds like me. And he knew she knew that I'm from West Texas. And Peter was recognized by the way that he talked. And this servant girl says, You're one of them. You were with Jesus and in Nazarene in verse 68. But, Je- but Peter he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. That's the first denial. I don't know what you're talking about. That's an easy thing to say. I just don't know what you're talking about. It's a lie. But he denies even knowing what she's talking about. He went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him, began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean too. The Galilean spoke with an Aramaic dialect. So he would have been recognizable to some of them. But look at the sadness of verse 71. But he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man you are talking about. He denied knowing the circumstances. He denied being a Jew, one of the apostles. And now he says, I don't even know this one you're talking about. How could that happen? This is Peter that had made those statements. Though everybody forsake you, I won't. This is Peter that had taken a sword literally and was going to defend Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, cut the servant of the high priest's ear off and Jesus had to heal the man's ear. This is Peter and now he's denying that he even knows Jesus. Well, if you don't get anything else tonight, get this one thing. Even with Peter's good intentions. What were some of us older folks taught about good intentions? You remember that phrase? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. You know why Peter couldn't do anything? Because Jesus was going to have to suffer completely. No one was going to defend Jesus. Some of you that have sung in church choirs before, or maybe you've sung solos before, there's a great old song that that has these words, I could have called 10,000 angels. I could have called Jesus told at one time, do you not know I could right now call 12 legions of angels and they would come and deliver me? Can you imagine that? To get out of the cross, all Jesus had to do was just say, come, and those angels are mighty and powerful, and they are ready. They could have come and swooped down on this earth and taken him away instantly. But he was not to be defended that day. Peter can defend him. John can defend him. The rest of those ladies at the foot of the cross are not going to be able to defend him. Jesus' own mama, his own mother could not defend him because it was God's will for Jesus to suffer completely for you and me. Do we have a lot to be thankful for? A whole lot more than just eating turkey with Indians and pilgrims. We've got a lot to be thankful for because Jesus did this for you and me. I heard this statement and I had to look it up. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Peter. This account of the denials of Peter probably came from Peter himself because Mark, the gospel of Mark, probably written by John Mark, is repeating. He learned these things from the eyewitnesses of uh, Peter. How did he get there? How did Peter? He didn't want to do that. We know that he didn't. He wanted to defend Jesus. But what's just happened in the scripture before this? He's overconfident. I don't care if everybody leaves you. I won't. Be careful. God may test us with our words sometime. Well, I'll never do that. There was a time in my life when I remember saying that in one of my prayers to God. God, I'm so glad I'll never do that. And, you know, uh, have you ever been taken behind the woodshed? Do you know what that means? (laughs) when God needs to correct you a little bit. And it was as old God was showing me, Mike, if I don't hold you, you would do anything. God is the restrainer in our life. He's the one that gives us strength and power to say no to temptation and sin. And Peter had to know he couldn't do it on his own. Jesus had asked him to stay awake and pray and three times Jesus had come back in Gethsemane and Peter was asleep. How's he gonna defend Jesus and If he can't even stay awake and pray long enough. He wasn't listening to what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will all be scattered. You know what Peter should have said? I hope it's not that way, but I know if you said it, it's going to be that way. He's associating with the wrong crowd. He got over there with all those Romans. He's going back to his old habits, and finally he outright denies even knowing Jesus. A sad, sad day. And then probably one of the most dramatic things in all the scriptures in the next words, Peter remembered how Jesus made the remark to him before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And in the the gospel of Luke, I believe it is, right when Peter denied him the third time, Jesus looked at him. I can't imagine what Peter felt like. I can imagine what, I felt like, and remember when I was in church as a little boy and me and my buddy got in trouble for making too much noise, I saw my mama look at me, and I want to tell you that was a fearful day because she had that look. But I can't imagine what Peter felt when Jesus' eyes met him and Peter realized, it's just like you said. Before that rooster crows twice, I'm going to even deny knowing you. In Peter's heart, was broken. The Bible says he began to weep. Real quickly, I want to ask you a question, and then I'm going to ask you to get ready for communion. Judas sinned, didn't he? And the Bible even says Judas went and repented himself. Uses that word in some of the translations. Was he sorry for his sin? He knew he had done wrong. But Jesus said he was a devil. Satan had entered into his heart. He was the son of perdition. He would not be saved. And Judas went and committed suicide. Suicide is never the answer. It's never the answer for someone that would call upon the name of Jesus. But I want to tell you, Judas couldn't. But Peter, the Bible says Peter wept and he wept bitterly. And he was sorry for what he had done. And the Bible teaches us that if we confess our sins, you know those verses, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God was ready to work in Peter's life. You may be here tonight and you say, Mike, you don't know what I've done. Well, I don't, but God does. And won't you let tonight be a night that you just settle all those accounts, just agree with him, call upon his mercy. Jesus, what you did for Peter that night, would you do it for me tonight? He's ready to. He loves you. In contrast with Judas, Peter's remorse opened up the way for true repentance. And you know what happened just not too long after this. When Jesus was raised from the dead, Peter was restored to fellowship with Jesus. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not saved. There's nothing else that matters. Barbara Cooper her eternal destiny was set before the 19th of this month. It was already set. What about you and me? Do you know Jesus? Do you love him? Do you love his word? Are you ready for heaven? Do you know for sure that he's bought you and paid the price for it? You can know tonight. You may have walked in just for the very first time visiting or you might have been here for years. It doesn't matter. You can know tonight that what Jesus did on these nights was for you also. Jesus was on trial, and he took that sentence, the punishment of being convicted of a crime he did not commit. There was no one to exonerate him, no one to set him free. We're sorry, Jesus. The testimony was false. Jesus died for you and me. And as we finish up Mark in just a very short time, uh, I pray that your heart would be full of gratefulness. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. And that's why we owe him everything. You've come to church tonight because you know we owe him everything. Joe, would you and your guys come forward and ladies, please, to get ready for communion? If anyone has not gotten one of the communion cups, would you raise your hand so some of the ushers can help uh, bring one to you? This Thanksgiving, when you sit down with family and friends, would you, when they ask you, what are you thankful for, would you tell them how grateful and thankful you are for Jesus? There was a man in jail. He had done a lot of things wrong, he tried to overthrow the government he had committed murder, probably beaten and stolen and committed so many crimes that they couldn't even list all the things that he was guilty of. He was in jail, rightfully sentenced. And not too many hours from the time that we hear of the words that we read tonight, someone comes to that jail cell and says, I'm here for you, can you imagine? He probably was ready to fight because he was a fierce person, that fought against the government. And they told him, uh, you're free to go. Probably that's a trick because he knows he's guilty of everything. But they said, no, you're free to go because although you were sentenced and deserving of death for your crimes, there's somebody going to die in your place. Who am I talking about? Barabbas. You know who Barabbas was? We are. We were not only sentenced to death, but we were already dead. And the message came to us. There's one that's going to die in your place, and his name is Jesus. Think about that as we go back in time 2,000 years to the night that Jesus ate the last meal that he would eat with his disciples on this earth before he died. Paul the Apostle in the book of 1 Corinthians was giving the instructions for our communion service. I think that's very fitting, Paul was not there and this is the Holy Spirit teaching him what took place that night. And he said on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he took the cup and he blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. Jesus had taught them that he was the true bread which came down from heaven. Moses had dealt with manna in the wilderness, but all those people that ate that manna that were rained down from heaven, they died. But Jesus had told his disciples, he that eats of this bread shall live forever. As Jesus sat with his disciples on that Lord's Supper night, he took bread. He broke it as a symbol of what he was about to do. He was about to give his body in your place and mine. And he said, I do this, and and you do this in remembrance of me. So as you take this bread here tonight, would you take just a couple seconds and close your eyes and tell Jesus how much you're grateful for his body that was given in your place. And now, Jesus, as we come to this bread of communion, We ask you to make our hearts right. For you said in the scripture, we should not come in an unworthy manner. Would you please, Lord, forgive us of everything. Would you please bless this wafer here tonight that we take in remembrance of your body that was given in our place. Bless it now, we pray in Jesus' name. Paul goes on to rehearse that after Jesus gave the bread to his disciples, he took a cup and he had told them often in his ministry that the blood is the new covenant in his blood. The cup was going to be the new covenant. It's a symbol of the blood of Christ that he would shed. The Bible teaches us the life is in the blood. And so for life to be given in our, in our place, there had to be shedding of blood. Jesus said, this is a new deal. This is a new covenant, a new testament that I'm making with you. And he would very shortly shed his blood on Calvary. Would you once again close your eyes and thank Jesus as we partake of this cup for shedding his blood for you? Jesus said to his disciples that night, and we... Hear his words throughout these years. Drink all of it. Paul says as often as you remember Christ in communion, you remember his death so grateful that you can look when i'm preaching you don't even have to look at me you can look right past me at that cross we must never forget what jesus did there but he said not only do we remember the cross but we remember he's coming back and jesus is on the way he is coming back at the moment that god has planned. he will interrupt history again he will come for his church and everyone man woman and child across this planet will be taken up to be with him forever you ready to go Those of you who are, you know you are. Not because you're good, not because you paid any money, not because you any credentials we have on our own, but because Jesus paid it all for you. I heard a man preach a sermon not long ago about a sermon he preached. He said, why do you think that I could go to heaven? Because the man on the middle cross said I could. If you're not saved here tonight, come up and talk to one of us. We'd love to pray with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. For Jesus. Thank you that he was condemned falsely, but he took that punishment and that condemnation for us. Thank you, Lord, that he is about to go to the cross as we continue in Mark and suffer punishment like no human has ever even known. But he did it all for everyone in this room. Oh, Father, as we thank you for our country this week, We thank you for the food that we eat and we don't take it for granted that it's a gift from you. We thank you, Lord, for all the blessings of life. We thank you for Jesus who was on trial. The one who was innocent became guilty for me. Thank you, Father, for that love in Jesus' name.